Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Batman. What is it, Robin? There are some innocent people being attacked by Vandar Og, a 50,000-year-old Cro-Magnon man rendered immortal by the rays of a fallen meteor. Hmm. Sounds like a Green Lantern thing. Why do you say that? I don't know. He's got that ring. He can probably just make something that does something to fix the meteor thing. Well, they, they flashed the bat signal against the night sky, so... They're probably testing it. They test it. The helpless city of Philadelphia is being scourged by Count Viper, Professor Doom, and a pterodactyl humanoid named Angel Killer. Huh. Maybe Tech Talk Man. He likes to battle things with wings. It might even be in the collective bargaining agreement that he gets first crack at them. Well, what are we going to do today? Today? Well, I'd like to go up to the Tom Ford store on 70th. They've got a leather bag I'd like to check out. It's called the Large Weekender. Here's the picture. It looks very smart. It's soft deer leather and then black suede calf leather trim along the bottom. Made in Italy. I don't know about the color. They call it dusty green. I love it. I really want to get bolder with color. So that's that's it? We're just going to buy a $4,000 overnight bag? And then I want to go to Alcones on 49th, where they have the anti-fatigue eye treatment I like, the rejuvenating cream. Okay. And then zip down to Christopher Street to that luxury watch store. They've got the new Philippe Petit with the chiming sound they spent five years of research to perfect. It's Aquaman's birthday, and I want to get him something really nice. For Aquaman? I mean, that's an $18,000 watch for Aquaman. What's wrong, Robin? It was my birthday last month, and you got me a new pair of green shorts. But with a bulletproof reinforced codpiece. You'll thank me someday. What is it with you and Aquaman these days? This is not something I want to air out with you right now. There's apparently a whole radio audience listening. And now... Wait, you say that. And now he played the arch-villain Professor Itchy... Colin McEnroe. And that was in the 1960s Batman uh, series. So let me just say that Batman, Batman's for everybody, right? I was, um, when my son was seven or eight, we used to have a lot of costumes around the house. And there was one night when I wanted him to get, wanted him to go with me to take the dogs for a little walk in the woods. And he said, well, only if we can go as Batman and Robin. And so I put on my Batman stuff and he put on his Robin stuff. We went for a little walk. And then as I drove back, I took a, a different turn. He said, where are we going? I said, we have to go back to Blockbuster to bring back some videos. That's back when Blockbuster was a thing. And, and he, was, he said, well, no, not like this. And he started ripping off his Robin costume. And so I, and then I, but I kept my Batman costume on, and we got to the parking lot. And he said, well, I'm not going in. And I said, well, you're too young to leave you in the car. You have to come in. And so I walked in there with my Batman costume on, and he's, like, creeping along the outside walls, hoping no one will see him. And I just turned to the guys at the counter. I said, uh, everything okay tonight, uh, gentlemen? And they said, it's fine, Batman. And I said, well, please let me know if you have any problems. They said, thank you, Batman. And I thought, you know, I could get used to this. I mean, my son was mortified. But I, I thought I could get used to being Batman. It's a good feeling. So we've just uh, assembled some Batman experts here today uh, to talk about the enduring 
uh, power of this uh, story, of this franchise, of this icon, and all the kind of semiotics behind it. Glenn Weldon, freelance writer and author of Superman, the unauthorized biography, and The Cape Crusader, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture, uh, which was released yesterday. Uh, he's also a regular panelist on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. With me in studio, he's in the NPR uh, New York studios. Uh, with me in studio is Mitch Halleck. He's the creator and uh, owner of Terrificon, uh, Connecticut's Comic-Con. So, um, uh, you know, Glenn, I'm going to begin with you and just maybe we could just sort of say what, why is there uh, why is there a Batman? Batman started in, in around 1939, I think. So why did Batman start? Uh, he started because they needed another Superman. Uh, the, the editor of the publisher of DC Comics said, uh, give me something else. Because Superman was already one of the first multimedia sensations uh, with merch uh, out the door in that very first year. He was also, and both of his creators uh, were very upfront about this, he was also a blatant ripoff of The Shadow. The very first Batman story was a lifting of a shadow story, almost a plot point for pot, plot point. And for about a year he stayed that. He was violent. He killed lots of folk. Uh, but then the publisher got a little worried, and they introduced Robin the Boy Wonder. And when they did that, the tone lightened, and for the next 30 years, he was basically a cop in a cape. Uh, you know, kind of an anodyne, bright, sunlit hero who fought crime in a in a very happy, candy-colored Gotham City. Although I think it's also w- worth noting that, I mean, he may have got, become a little bit brighter and, and more anodyne, but, you know, he really is, he, he coincides perfectly with the noir aesthetic. I mean, really, noir and pulp fiction and the kind of crime fiction that was being cranked out by people like Cornell Woolrich, who uh, wrote the detective story that turned into Rear Window later. Um, this is all happening right at the same time. 1939 is the first Raymond Chandler novel, The Big Sleep. So there's, to me, there's a way in which, you know, Superman can never be noir, at least <laughs> until now anyway. But anyway, <laughs> Superman could never be noir. There, there was a way in which there was, Glenn, I think, an aesthetic rising up that, that had to be bitten into by this medium. Absolutely. And because the shadow was the personification of noir, and because uh, he also overlaid on top of that, uh, I'm talking about Bill Finger, the writer, he la- overlaid on top of this a fascination with the upper crust. Because it was also the era of private lives, you know, Noel Coward and Topper and The, th- and, uh, um, the Thin Man and all, all those uh, things that were fascinated with people in taffeta and drinking s- champagne it was exactly the same the same thing he kind of overlaid it on top so you have this meshing of two things that don't really go together ideally but they work and then in 1970 Denny O'Neill the writer looked back at that very first pulpy uh, Batman and said this is what we need we now need a Batman with a personality because uh, they hadn't had one <laughs> to find because that's the superheroes didn't need them until the audience got a little older all of a sudden in 1970 the audience was teens and adults not very young kids so they rebooted Batman it's the first actual reboot in comics history and it stuck all right, we're going to talk about that reboot and, and some of the other uh, Noel Coward <laughs> parallels later. But uh, So, Mitch Halleck, there, yes. there's so much more to say about this, including uh, the, the obvious thing about Batman is that he uh, he's different from other superheroes. Mm-hmm. He's, he's different, different from the very few who had preceded him, and he's different from most of the ones who've succeeded him. There just aren't that many people uh, in the superhero universe who are self-created this way. Yeah, exactly right. He's not bitten by a radioactive spider. He's not an alien from another planet. He's just a human who basically had to endure one of the biggest tragedies any child could have a nightmare about. He loses his parents, and he dedicates in his, his life and becomes a selfless protector of the innocent. And that appeals to people. Plus, what's not to love? He's a billionaire. He's got flashy cars. He's 
wealthy. So if you're a kid reading this, you go, wow, this is the life I want to be. I want to be a millionaire. I want to have flashy cars. And at night, I might do some good and save the uh, average guy from the elements of evil out there. Right. So most superheroes don't have that much choice about it. No. Um, I mean, Superman is basically a guest worker, you know, uh, undocumented alien. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, I mean, a lot of the superheroes who would come later viewed themselves as genuinely accursed mm-hmm. uh, to, to have any superpowers at all. Batman, he does it by choice. Mm-hmm. We talked to Chip Kidd, who's done some graphic novels uh, of Batman and who is a superlative designer in every way. Um, let's play clip two here about Batman's identity. Frank Miller in his classic The Dark Knight Returns then sort of turned that back around and made it such that Bruce Wayne is living the lie. Uh, You know, he's in retirement and he's decided, you know, the world no longer needs a Batman. And then this voice within him speaks up and says, I am your soul. I am who you truly are. How can you deny me? It's very, very operatic and grandiose. Pfeiffer wrote, Really, the first book examining superheroes out of their context of the comics, which I read when I was very young. And then and then there was the whole introduction of Robin, which became the idea that the young readers, they could either pretend that they were Batman or now they could pretend that they were with Batman and having a, an adventure with him. So, um, and Jules, Jules Pfeiffer is who he's talking about, and one of Pfeiffer's um, observations in that famous essay is that um, that Superman is the reality, Clark Kent is the lie, but Bruce Wayne is the reality, Batman is the lie. So, um, so Glenn Weldon, the other part of this, uh, and it's in your book, um, uh, just building on what Mitch has just said, is that Batman is therefore kind of aspirational, right? You're not going to be Superman. Uh, you're not going to be the Green Lantern. Uh, you're not going to be Daredevil or Spider-Man. That's just not going to happen, but... It, you could be Batman, or if you're a kid reading the comic books, you could be Robin. It's just like if I could just get in shape, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. You're just a few sit-ups away. That's all it takes. Uh, I talked to a lot of people, and, you know, they all said to me, uh, and they were Batman fans, so they said to me, Superman is uh, an ideal. He's unrealistic. I could never be him, but I could be Batman, and you or I could be Batman. And I would point out to them that actually Batman does have a superpower, which is his wealth, this unimaginable, limitless wealth that makes Everything possible. It transforms the flatly impossible into the vaguely plausible, mm. which is all you need. It, it works in every Batman story essentially like magic. It, it makes the whole thing possible, the, the, the gadgets, the, the HQ, the everything. And so – but I think he works in America because there's this thing called the American dream where all of us secretly believe – not so secretly – that we could become a billionaire if we just try really hard. And I think that's why – uh, his fans, he has deeper roots in his fan base than Superman does in his. So, Mitch, w- there's a couple of things that happen that I think are kind of watershed moments. One of them is that um, comic books in the 50s and 60s were the province of certain groups of people, yeah. 50s and early 60s. people They were the province of people who read comic books, basically. Um, and 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 yet there seemed to be something uh, stirring, something that maybe you could do with this. So we get the first ever Batman TV series, um, which is either regarded as this fabulous uh, embellishment uh, and and hilarious expression uh, of this particular aesthetic or this enormous betrayal, depending on who you are vis-a-vis Batman. Well, there was the campiness that came along with the Adam West because it was designed by Hollywood producers who saw this as a costume character like a clown. And what appeals to the kids? They were trying to 
get something the family can get together. And it was written, like you said, on two levels. The parents laughed at the campy jokes and the little innuendos, where the kids, like when I saw it as myself, I thought it was real. I thought this is serious drama here going on here, Batman versus Mr. Freeze. You can't get more impactful than that. So it worked on both levels. But the interesting thing is the counterculture that was happening in the 60s is a reflection in the Batman show. So he has always been a mirror to what's happening in society and no other character I can think of in the comic book industry has really played that role except Batman, and he's changed like a chameleon decade after decade to where we have him now. The other thing, Glenn, is that a whole bunch of people who were essentially excluded uh, from the story, the idea, the franchise, the aesthetic, are suddenly into I mean, there's nothing like a mass met, mass market network TV show on, on prime time, you know, in an era when there's only three channels you can watch anyway, uh, to, to really just create an awareness that had never existed before. Yeah, and there's this fascinating uh, fanzine that existed back then called Batmania, which was named Batmania before the whole fad of that Batman show came along. And they were very excited about this show. And at one point, one of them writes, can you imagine that when uh, when Batman punches a foe, there'll be the big pow on the screen? Won't that be great? And you can just see it kind of like a slow motion car crash as the hardcore fans mm-hmm. just in the issue right before the show premieres and the issue as the show premieres. And then they, they just kind of feel um, fundamentally betrayed. But all the, that show really did was take the four, the the, fifth, the 60s comics uh, of the day, the, the comics from 1964 and 1965, which were very simple and uh, anodyne and colorful, and just took them as uh, uh, like they were gonna like it was an Ibsen play, and we're gonna we're gonna assert this with gravity. We're gonna make it the the phrase that the producer used uh, to his writers was, "Let's do it like we're dropping the bomb on Hiroshima." Uh, with that level of gravity, and that produced the humor, and that made it this huge fad. But um, you know, nerds strive for the acceptance of the mainstream, but when they get it, they shy away. And they hated the show. Once the fad fizzled, which it did very quickly, uh, they the, the sales of Batman comics, because a lot of people were buying them because they thought they, they'd cash in on the campy funness, uh, the sales tanked, and they had to recreate Batman. And I say in the book that if it wasn't for Adam West, they wouldn't have had anything to react against, and we wouldn't have the Batman that exists in the cultural consciousness today, the dark, grim Swear to me, Batman. He, you can't get to him without having Adam West doing the Patusi. The um, yeah, there's for me it was. I was a kid still, um, and th- it seemed like the sonification of, of something that was very dark. Uh, the same thing was happening with Mary Poppins, which had started out in the books as this very austere, dark, strange, mysterious, paganistic thing, and then got turned into this Julie Andrews movie. I couldn't stand it. I felt betrayed doubly during that period. Um, but I, I think another thing is happening right after that. You know, Mitch, you mentioned the '60s counterculture. So in a way, yeah. Batman could be adapted to the aesthetic, the kind of almost Daglo aesthetic of Rowan and Martin's laughing or, or things like that, things that were on television kind of pretending to be the counterculture without necessarily really being that. But the other thing that I think is also happening because of the counterculture, and it manifests itself, I think, in the rival comics franchise, the upstart Marvel comic franchise, uh, are heroes beginning to question the whole premise. Oh. You know, so you've got you've got the Fantastic Four who are bombarded by gamma rays. They don't want to, the thing is turned into this horrible thing. He's, you know, nobody, he doesn't want to be this. Spider-Man and like, I don't know, by issue 10, I think he had swung through the window of a psychiatrist, webbed him to his chair and demanded a session to know why would someone do this? Why would someone run around saving people who are complete strangers and aren't even all that grateful a lot of the time and taking a lot of crap in the newspaper uh, about it? What was what was he doing? So for the first time, you get people 
questioning, the as, as everybody else is questioning authority in America, superheroes are questioning the very premise of being a superhero. Oh, absolutely. And the frustrations, like you said, were coming from the writers. You have to remember most of these fellows were right out of college. They're in their late teens, early 20s. So they're right in the thick of the things, and they're feeling the frustration out there. And then they're looking at the news every night, and they're seeing war, and they're seeing corruption. So a character like Batman and all the other superheroes, too, are an instant gratification because the system is broken. All right? The justice system doesn't work. All the laws that our parents grew up and told us this is the way things had to be, now you're starting to see through the veil, and it doesn't work. So the superheroes that we all thought were, you know, mom's apple pie, truth, justice, the American way, even the American way becomes in question. And Batman is, again, like we talked about, reinvented once again as a personification of that. And he's going to go out there and right the wrongs. He's not going to listen to a judge or a lawyer or anything like that. He knows in his gut, this is what's right. This is what's wrong. And if you're not going to do something about it, I am. And just like all the other superheroes that you just mentioned, we're starting to question why they were doing what they were doing. It's reflected in the comics. So, and so yeah, Glenn, how does Batman handle that? So to, to, as a comic book reader, and I was just a reader, I'm not the kind of semi-edition that, that you guys are. Uh, all I saw was an emergent group of Marvel superheroes who thought and talked a little bit more the way that I did. They asked the kinds of questions that I asked. They were a little bit more wisecracky, too. Superman and Batman tended to be pretty stolid. Uh, they didn't take very many verbal chances. Sometimes Robin would say something kind of sporty when he was cracking somebody in the jaw. But, but so how does Batman, after the TV series dies down, uh, after the dilettantes go away, what happens in the Batman comic book? How does he respond to this challenging new environment? Well, uh, Denny O'Neill, who wrote the the Batman that came right after the uh, Adam West television show, looked at what Marvel was doing. He actually got his start at Marvel. Now, Marvel knew. You can say a lot of things about Stan Lee. What you can't not say is that he was a good marketer. He identified that the audience was now teens and adults, that they didn't want childhood uh, wish fulfillment, you know, I can run fast, I can fly. They want adolescent wish fulfillment. I can get the girl, people will accept me. Um, you know, I, I, he, and so he invested these heroes with uh, personalities, or if, if you really want to get technical, personality disorders, you know, where so they could have conflict, because that's characterization 101. You bring characters into conflict to define what they're for and what they're against. So Denny O'Neill looked at that and said, we need to find something to give Batman a personality. He looked back at that very first origin way back in 1939 and found this one panel where uh, the young Bruce Wayne is taking an oath. I will dedicate the rest of my life to warring on all criminals. That, I think, is key. It's not vengeance he's seeking. It's not uh, a vendetta. He is dedicating himself, as Mitch said, to something beyond him, bigger than him. It's an act of self-rescue, but it's also, and this was key, an obsession. He, Denny O'Neill said this, ha- this thing has to define him. This is, the, this is the core of his personality. Because, again, it was the 70s. Pop psychology was a thing. All of a sudden, in DC and in Marvel, all these, these uh, larger, sometimes social issues or sometimes uh, you know, emotional problems creep into these characters and define them so that they, you can tell one character from another. Because for many years, the only way you could tell one character from another is, is what they look like. That's why the, the costumes are so kind of bright, colorful, and elemental, and what they could do. Batman became obsessed. And I think, and then one of the things that's in the book, is that you have a character who is obsessed, a readership who is now older, and obsessed themselves with debating the finer points of all this arcana, like it's with Talmudic de- devotion, who are bagging and boarding their comics, who know a little something about obsession, identify with him in a very key way. 
All right. Uh, we're going to take a break here and come back with more of this discussion. Let's see. A very rich guy who sort of doesn't have to do anything, but who decides he's going to dedicate himself to correcting things he thinks are wrong with America, but not playing by the rules. I'm trying to think what that sounds like. Can we get through the whole show without mentioning the T word today? I'm going to try. We're talking about the enduring power of the Batman myth. Uh, in studio with me is Mitch Halleck, creator and owner of Terrificon, Connecticut's Comic-Con. When does it happen? Uh, August 19th is the 21st at the Mohegan Sun Convention Center. All right. Uh, Glenn Weldon is with us, freelance writer, author of Superman, the unauthorized biography, and The Caped Crusader, Batman, and the Rise of Nerd Culture, which was released yesterday. He's also a regular panelist on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. So, um... We do have to talk about uh, one thing, which is um, sort of the, the, the moment at which you, you kind of hear a different story about Batman and maybe about Batman and Robin. And, and Mitch, maybe we can just begin by saying okay. that from 48 to 59, there was this movement in America that actually started, for the most part, here at Hartford, Connecticut. This is the Tigris and Euphrates of the anti-comic book movement. There was a notion that comic books were subversive. They were contributing to a thing called delinqu- uh, juvenile mm-hmm. delinquency, which people talked about all, all the time. And so Comics were bad. EC Comics, these kind of gruesome comics put out by Bill Gaines, were especially bad. But also, there was something wrong with this whole Batman and Robin thing. Yeah, it was one of those things that, you know, when there's a problem in the society or someone thinks there's a problem in society, they have to point the finger at somebody. And there was a psychiatrist, Dr. Frederick Wortham, and he was kind of the pop, I don't know what you want to call him at the time, the pop psychiatrist at the time. And he put the finger on comic books. He pointed directly at it and said, the reason why we have so many JDs or juvenile delinquents, it's because I've done a study and they all seem to be reading these very colorful magazines that have depictions of horror, murder. And then Batman and Robin, wait a minute, you have an older gentleman who's hanging out with a young boy, 13 or so, and... They sleep in the same room. What's going on here? And then another level of the Batman mythos started. So what happened is they split up Batman and Robin. They went their separate ways. Batman went here. Robin went here. They were still a team, but they had to introduce other characters. They introduced Batwoman, and they tried to change the whole mythos of Batman and Robin. It didn't look appropriate anymore for Bruce Wayne to be palling around all the time with young Dick Grayson. Something odd about that. Well, Glenn, they didn't just sleep in the same room. Uh, there's a 1954 panel. I don't know how many others there are like this, but there's at least one where they wake up in the same bed. It's time to begin the day. It's time for a cold shower, Bruce Wayne yep. says to Dick Grayson, right? Yeah. Yes, and the, and the narration right above that panel says, a typical day at Wayne Manor. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, well, okay, you're okay. just digging your own grave here, dude. Right. So, I mean, in some ways, Wortham seems like this uh, uh, imposter. I mean, Wortham, uh, the, the psychiatrist who, who basically is, as Mitch says, prepared to blame all the ills of society on comic books, uh, is, seems absurd and, and kind of buffoonish now. But on the other hand, uh, Glenn, you argue in your book, he did, his, did put his finger on something. There's something going on in Batman, with Batman and Robin, with, with the... With the the aesthetic uh, of Batman at times, not going on everywhere else in comic books. There is something undeniably, for some readers anyway, gay about Batman. Yeah, you got two dudes living together in a sumptuous house, uh, and they are they work together, they live together, and you know it, it, none of this was intentional. That's not the way subtext works. And uh, Wortham 
did have a point, but he didn't have he didn't have the point he thought he had. He thought what he actually said in the book, and he only spends about four pages on Batman and Robin. He's got a bigger fish to fry. But for about Batman and Robin, he says the in a culture like ours where homosexuality is the great taboo, seeing these two people together uh, in such a close bond could cause young boys to think, to identify with them and think that they were gay. Now, this is flatly not true if you're a straight kid. If you're a gay kid, and I can speak from personal experience here, uh, dude had a point (laughs) (laughs) that you do see something in any image. And it's very important that these are images uh, because this is this means when when things can go on that the text is not asserting, but we can see because this is what subtext is. We look deeper when we don't see representations of ourselves in the world. We we tr- we look for them. We create them. We 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 interpret uh, the way uh, he's putting his hand on on Robin's shoulder one way. It resonates with us. We don't necessarily know what we're seeing, but uh, we create it, and that's uh, that's what he kind of put his finger on. And, and in your book, you know, there's a passage near the near the end. I think where you sort of say, well, you know, I talk about the sort of the malleability of Batman at any given moment, and you say, for so and so, he's such and such. For so and so, he's another thing. For this person, he's another thing. And you say, for that person, he's a gay icon. And Batman, gay icon, um, isn't something that springs easily or readily or familiarly from the mouths of a lot of people. But to, to, to what degree is it kind of a through line that keeps going even in the absence of Robin? Well, in a sense, Wortham was the first uh, pop culture shipper. Basically, he saw these two people together and he said, what about, what, what's this connection here? And this would happen. This happened with Holmes. This happens with Holmes and Watson. Any two dudes, any two people of the same sex put together, uh, the the culture yearns to, to put them together. And it's, you know, it's not fair to take a familial um, bond and, and interpret it as a sexual or a romantic one, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter that it's fair or not. It happens. And you only have to look at uh, the Joel Schumacher films to see that aesthetic, that that gay reading just sort of bubble up to the surface. But I think, I think also, and at least one of the major authors of Batman, most of them deny, uh, the people who've kind of taken over the franchise over the years, most of them deny finding anything particularly gay about him. I think there is one author that you quote who says, oh, no, no, he's there's something really gay about this whole thing. Um, and and to me, another part of this is in, in a far less accepting era, Glenn, the high level of secrecy and, and the shroudedness of this. I mean, every superhero has a secret identity. Batman has a secret, secret, secret identity, right? I mean, he's it's in a cave. It's underground. I mean, it's like the biggest damn closet you ever saw. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's literally a closet, right? Uh, yeah, he has uh, signifiers. He has things about him that resonate with gay men. It's the fear of being exposed. You know, all, so many of those Silver Age stories were about, uh, had no plot except, oh, my God, my secret identity might be exposed. Mm-hmm. That's it. Uh, you know, and he is palling around with another dude. And he's, he's you know, jacked. All these things have kind of connotations <laughs> that uh, that gay dudes like me kind of look to. So, Mitch, um, the other thing that, be, that then eventually happens, once again, comic books become comic books. Certain people read them. Maybe a different kind of person reads them. Reads them. Graphic novels start. A different person uh, maybe is attracted to those. And these more highly complex, dark, sometimes vigilante mm-hmm. uh, iterations of Batman happen. But the other thing happens is that movie franchises get really interested in comic books. And, and Batman is really appealing, I would think, to movie franchises. First of all, because there's a whole lot of special effects problems you don't have to solve. You don't have to figure out how 
now he's got a fly because he doesn't fly. Right. And there's a, you, know, you don't have to make him swing from skyscrapers because he's not Spider-Man. So um, now we start getting other visions uh, of Batman. So, Mitch, I'm going to let you start out. I mean, the first one we see is, is Michael Keaton. We see Jack Nicholson as the Joker. How does that play with the, the Batman audience? Well, at the time the 1989 Michael Keaton film came out, they was just on the heels of Frank Miller, who was a comic book writer and artist who readapted the character in the mid-'80s with a book called The Dark Knight Returns, and that's a gritty Batman. That's not the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams that we were talking about earlier. Now we have a Batman who's older, who's been through the wars, if you will. He's gritty, and he's just angry. He is angry. He's frustrated. He's an older gentleman. He's in his 50s. He hasn't been fighting crime for years. He's lost Robin. Robin's died in some adventure that we haven't been told about. And he sees the world around him. And again, it's a reflection of what's going on in the 80s. He sees what's happening around the world, and it's just utter chaos. There's just just pandemonium. There's no law whatsoever. Superman, his old friend, if you will, has become a puppet of the Reagan administration. He's all that. He's America. He's everything that's right with the world. He's sunshine. This is what you do. You follow the, the leader. Batman, counterculture, he knows that there's something wrong. So he goes back. There's a, a great scene in that book where the lightning flashes and suddenly he's back and he's on the streets and the police are like, oh, my God, we haven't seen him in years. And here he is to save the day. So 1989, Hollywood says, we want to make Batman. And the biggest fear that all the audience and all the fans had was that they were going to reinterpret the Adam West TV series on the big screen. That's what people were afraid of. And with the cast of Michael Keaton, who at that time was known as a comedic actor from Mr. Mom and Night Shift, those fears were made <laughs> concrete. We were like, oh, no, this is going to be a joke. And then 1989, June, it opens. Jack Nicholson at the time was at the peak of his career. You can't get more maniacal or devilish than Jack Nicholson. And it was a dark movie. It was nothing like the Day Glow Batman 60 show. And again, all because of what Frank Miller had done in the comic books. We are now in the era of the angry Batman. And that would continue until Joel Schumacher reinterpreted again a couple years later. But then there was that callback. And the movie that's coming out this week with Ben Affleck, the one that was out with Christian Bale, it's all that gritty, angry Batman that seems to strike a nerve with fans in America, fans around the world, that there's, we need that hero. We need someone who's going to fight against terrorism, who's going to fight against corruption, because no one else will do it. And Batman's the guy who's going to get dirty. He's going to get down on the ground, and he is going to fight for us. And that's the enduring popularity. And, and Hollywood has picked up on that. They're just going to rehash it again and again and again because although, that's what people want. Although Glenn is a Batman nerd watching that uh, Michael Keaton Jack Nicholson movie. I don't know. There was sort of a, a moment near the end of the movie where Batman seemed to be losing kind of a fist fight to the Joker, you know, who's this little pot-bellied uh, Jack Nicholson uh, guy. He just There's something about Michael Keaton and the, and the Tim Burton imagining of this that still had just enough of a sly sense of humor about the whole thing and to be a little bit disappointing to maybe someone as hardcore and unimaginative as, as I apparently was at that moment. Well, I think what you're reacting to, what you reacted to, is that when you take Batman out of the medium he was made for, the comic book, uh, you change him. Uh, that's inevitable because comic books are basically soap operas. The characters in comic books are denied the one thing that makes a story an actual story and not just simply an adventure. Co comic book characters can't end. Mm -hmm. They have to keep iterating and iterating and iterating. And people like me really love that constant churning. Oh, the Joker escaped. The Joker's back. The Joker escaped. The Joker's back. We love those genre constraints. 
But, uh, you know, normals out there want just the bullet points. Just just give it to me. Just, just walk me through it. They don't necessarily want years and years of continuity and reboots and retcons. They want to be told a simple story with a beginning, middle, and end. And Batman, uh, the 1989 Batman, is an action movie. It has rising action. It's got the love interest who learns his secret identity, which don't get me started on that. And uh, it also has the thing that was imposed by the producers, the Hollywood producers. You know who killed Batman? Or killed Batman's parents? The Joker. That's that's the way it's going to be because that's tidy. That is action movie, rising action, falling action. And it doesn't work for Batman because the thing that makes Batman Batman is that he's not seeking revenge. He is dedicating himself to a much wider mission. So that's why that, sh- that movie didn't really work for me. So we're going to have to leapfrog just in the interest of time and past Val Kilmer and past George Clooney and Chris O'Donnell. That's the Joel Schumacher one that I guess I've been talking about. Easily uh, the gayest reinterpretation. Uh, and, I mean, right down to the nipples and the codpiece and the whole thing is just uh, – and George Clooney said Batman isn't gay, but we made him gay. Um, and, 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 and then we come to this Christopher Nolan uh, uh, movie, this, this really three-part Christopher Nolan Batman franchise. And, and – I don't know. Just to go back to, to go back to what you're saying, Glenn. I'm trying to see if I can sort out my own thoughts about this. Batman Begins, I thought, was this very, very remarkable movie uh, at the beginning. It really was sort of showing me this Batman that I've never seen, just retelling the origin story in this fabulous way. And it seemed almost a shame when two-thirds of the way through the movie, he really does have to go and solve it. He has to fix something. It actually has to have some, you know, some, some crime wave, some danger that he is going to thwart in pretty typical Batman fashion. Because right up to that point, I thought, wow, I'm seeing something I've never seen before. Yeah, it was a the first third is a martial arts film. The the second the second the second part of it is basically a gangster film, and then the third part of it is a something's gonna blow up. Oh my god, action movie, very rote, very very straightforward. But it does bring something that uh, that we hadn't seen before, and also uh, it was based on a lot of different storylines over the years. And the thing that changed is Hollywood learned from Schumacher, they learned from Burton, who both in interviews would kind of dismiss the source material. Uh, they made sure that everybody who was coming out passed through the Warner's marketing department and got schooled. So every cast member, every producer, every di- and the director could quote chapter and verse and say, "Oh, we can- we got it from this. We got it from this. I'm a lo- lifelong Batman fan." Wasn't none of it was true, but it was asserted, and all of a sudden you start to see the fan base coalescing around these films and not f- having this re- instinctive, reactive nerd reaction of uh, what's going on here. So, Mitch, the next thing you get is The Dark Knight, which changes the landscape in lots of different ways. It is literally the reason why there are 10 Oscar or 9 Oscar nominees for Best Picture, because The Dark Knight was this amazing film that just didn't conform to to the parameters for Best Picture, so it didn't get nominated. It bothered people so much that they wanted to be able to nominate more movies. You, you see uh, Heath Ledger give this performance as the Joker where, I mean, so often the question is, can somebody's performance live up? to my expectations based on decades of comic books. And then for me here, anyway, I, it was it was so different. It was, oh, my God, that's what the Joker is all about. Yeah, it was hypnotic to watch his performance because it was that chaos. That's the Joker. Batman is all about order, black and white, good and bad. But the random factor of chaos is what Joker was. And it personified Heath Ledger's performance was unbelievable. I mean, you could watch that film again and again and find something out of there, the nuances he gave to it. And plus, you also had a great character in Two-Face, mm-hmm. which was Batman's ally in the fight against justice. He's the lawyer, Harvey Dent, who becomes a villain. And again, flip of the coin, whatever happens, if it's heads, it's the shiny side, we're going to do good. If it's scarred and it's the bad side, I'm going to shoot you and become a bad guy. 
that film literally took 75 years of Batman history and boiled it together in a two and a half hour epic film that resonated to anybody that just wanted to see a good story. You didn't have to be a comic book fan. I know many folks, including my wife, who never read a comic book, but she'll sit through that film because it was an engaging story. It was a great character portrait of this man who's trying to save everybody, and then he's fighting against an unbelievable force of nature, the Joker, that you'll never win. You'll never stop the sun from rising, and it just kept going and going and going, and I, I think that's the peak of all the Batman films. No matter yes. where we go, down the road, they'll never, ever rise above that. Even Dark Knight Rises, the, the follow-up to Which that. Which I, I sort of think, that, I yeah. actually think Dark Knight is Christopher Nolan's actual last Batman movie. Dark Knight Rises, he yeah. was almost not that interested in Batman anymore. He was so, so much more interested in Bane. Hey, I just want to, be, before we run out of time, yes, Glenn, sir. one of the things, one of the hallmarks of this, and we're kind of alluding to it without saying it is, I think more than with any other comic book franchise, this is um, a, a franchise which uh, obviously it mutates a lot uh, and its fans feel very protective of it, right? I mean, there, there are these canonical arguments about Batman that you just, and it's not that you would never see to hear them about Super, Superman or the Fantastic Four or Spider-Man. You wouldn't hear them that way. They're almost like, you know, Middle Ages scholastics or something having these sure. huge fights. I, I don't know, if, Glenn, if there's more you want to say about that. Well, no, it's just that you have to keep in mind that this is a cycle. The wheel turns from light to dark to light to dark. It's inevitable. Also, he he becomes three different people. He has three different phases, lone vigilante, uh, father figure to Robin, and then kind of head of this vast bat family, a bunch of protégés who put on bat masks. But then inevitably he goes back to being the lone vigilante. It has something to do. It resonates with the light to dark cycle. They're they're both at play. But bef- the, the fanboys uh, assert that only the hardcore uh, gritty Batman is the one true Batman, all others are somehow debased. Uh, what the book, my book, tries to put put to, out there is that there's a Batman for everybody. Uh, we need some lightness in this. Uh, just uh, yesterday, uh, Ben Affleck said, yeah, I don't think I'm going to be taking my son, my, my kid, to the uh, uh, Batman versus Superman movie. And when we have a movie that is about a flying spaceman and a, and a billionaire ninja and we can't take kids to it, I, that says something really weird about us as a society. Although I was intrigued to read in your book, and this is something I didn't know anything about, but I'm sure you guys do. There's this game, I think it's called Arkham Asylum, yeah. where you can kind of customize yeah. Batman. You can you can make Batman what you want him to be. Uh, and maybe that's the solution. Let everybody build their own Batman. Uh, like like Build-A-Bear. All right, we have to take a quick break. We'll be back with Glenn and Mitch. We're also going to tell you about, well, we haven't mentioned it so far, one of the other very cool things about Batman. And that, of course, would be the Batmobile. Please, boy wonder, please come next Saturday and sleep for a week or two. So much that I want you to spend the whole summer with me. I hope you know this is a girl right. Robin, I'm needed downtown. What is it, Batman? I'm about to plunge headlong into a case I'm calling the Cult of the Monkey Fist. A band of martial arts assassins? Yes, something like that. Anyway, the point is, don't wait up for me. That's weird, because back in the day, the cult of the monkey fist was the kind of thing we'd do together. Today's show was produced by Tiana Duquette, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill is Batman and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our other intern today is Benjamin Esty. The part of Bill Curry was played by Burgess Meredith. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff in Catwoman suits, go to our website, wnpr.org. Colin. 
And now, back to Colin. Yeah, special shout out to Tiana Duquette. She's one of our fine, fine interns here. Uh, this idea sprang, sprung, sprang from uh, from her mind. One of the things Chip Kidd told me when we were talking is uh, it's something that he said before is that Batman, among other things, he's a designer. I mean, Chip thinks that because he's a designer. But, uh, but he's right that part of the whole Batman thing is he designed himself out of the life he was in and into the life that he wanted. He figured out, uh, he figured out a look. He figured out how to make a suit. Uh, he figured out this whole aesthetic. He figured out he designed a belt that would have stuff in it that would be helpful to him. It, it, there is an, a way in which this whole thing is kind of a miracle of design, uh, much more so than any superhero that, that I can think of. And, of course, one of the things that had to be designed was an incredibly cool thing to ride around in, particularly when you can't fly. You've got to yeah. have something cool to ride around in. So, actually, uh, first of all, uh, we want to talk to Mark Rakup. He's the owner of Fiberglass Freaks. Uh, he is a Batmobile uh, maker. He is the Batmobile maker licensed by DC Comics. Uh, and uh, he joins us right now from, I think, you're, are you still in Indiana, Mark? Yes, Logansport, Indiana. And so how is it that you came to be making Batmobiles? I've been a fan since I was two years old and absolutely loved the show, everything about it, the music, the color, the action, but especially with the Batmobile. And I said, someday I want to drive that car. So I was 11 years old when I went to Chicago to see the number four Batmobile at the Antique Auto Museum and uh, fell in love with it all over again, seeing the very first time seeing a full-scale car. And I said, not only am I going to drive one, I'm going to build one. So I built my first one when I was 17, and then that led me into building them professionally starting in 2003. How many Batmobiles have you built? We've completed 23 cars, and, and we have eight, eight more in construction right now. Um, the, well, who, and who, who wants them? Who, want, who, who buys them? You know, uh, we have people from all over the world that are interested in Batman. Uh, they're, they're usually in their 50s or 60s. They watched the show as a kid, and uh, now they have a little bit of extra money. The kids are out, out, of, uh, out of the house, and <laughs> this is the one gift that they've always wanted, and they finally get to uh, treat themselves to it. Could be this is the ultimate midlife crisis purchase, I suppose. Uh, I'm not getting a red convertible. I'm getting a Batmobile. So um, you weren't a car designer. That's not sort of what your métier was. You learned to be a car designer so you could make Batmobiles. Correct, right. Yeah, I started out as a filmmaker needing the ultimate prop for a Batman fan film that I was doing. I did uh, two of them without a car, and the third one I decided I needed that prop. So uh, we built our first Batmobile, five crazy 17-year-olds with no automotive experience whatsoever and no, not even a, a single automotive tool. But by the end of building the, that, it took about three summers, we uh, had all of those tools and we were really uh, teaching ourselves along the way and brought in a lot of professionals to give us assistance. Um, and that's how it all began. And, and, I mean, I have so many different questions, but let's just say that Mitch and Glenn and I decided we were going to buy one of these and just kind of timeshare it uh, over the course of the year. Uh, so we're going to throw in our, our pensions uh, together and buy this thing. Well, what's it going to cost us? Uh, the the base model is one hundred and twenty five thousand. The mid range model is one hundred and seventy five, and the top of the line is two fifty. It's the drivetrain and the bat gadgets that make the difference from one level to the next. So this isn't like some Buick that you're repurposing or something. I, I you're you're building a Batmobile, like yeah, right. Uh, we were using nineteen seventies Lincoln Town cars and uh, rebuilding the frames and 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 then putting in brand new crate engines. But now we're building custom built chassis brand new chassis with modern steering, modern brakes, modern suspension. And, and it's it's awesome. Do you have your own that you just drive around just styling? 
I still have my first one, the one I built when I was 17, and I, I still use that for some promotions, but I am finally building myself one. But with uh, so many cars in construction, it's been tough to squeeze it in, <laughs> but we're working on that. There isn't just one Batmobile anyway, right? I mean, we've all seen it's, it's looked, it has a general look, but it, it morphs from, from iteration to iteration. So how do you decide what the Batman, what the Batmobile looks like? Well, I look at the 1966 Batmobile from Episode 1 and pretty much um, patterned it after that one, Season 1, Episode 1. But you're right, even the number one car from the TV show morphed uh, quite a bit as they added more and more Bat gadgets or they traded Bat gadgets. They traded the label several times across the dashboard. And they even moved the arch up over the rear windshield in the third season to give a little more camera room for Adam and Bert. So you're absolutely right. Uh, so that's what I target is episode one. So uh, if I were to borrow the car for a day and just drive it around in my sad little life, what would what would happen to me? And I mean, what, would, what do people do when they see it? You're just driving around in one of the ones you're working on or your first prototype or whatever. What do people say to you when you're driving around in that? Oh, the joy that you would spread in driving around the car is amazing. Mitch is nodding. He wants yeah. to do this. Yeah. It really is so so cool. You know, you think driving a Ferrari or a Corvette or, or a Lamborghini is cool, and those are awesome cars, don't get me wrong. But when you drive a Batmobile, it knocks all the others out of the park because this is the car that brings so much joy and so many smiles to people's faces. They're singing the Batman theme to you. You just change somebody's life by driving a car past them. Yeah. <laughs> if they were having a bad day, they aren't having a bad day now. So uh, I want to go uh, back over to our, our guest, uh, Mitch Halleck in studio uh, from Terrificon and, and Glenn Weldon, uh, who's sure. the author of The Cape Crusader, uh, Batman and the Rise of uh, Nerd Culture. Uh, Mark Rakup, thank you so much for talking to us. And Mark Rakup has his own uh, YouTube channel. It's R-A-C-O-P. That's how you spell his name. You, know, you can uh, see these uh, these wonders that he creates. So uh, I, as we end, well, so Glenn Weldon, the Batmobile is one of the things that kind of sits on the knife's edge of who Batman is in the sense that if you go back and watch those uh, 1960s shows, it's a little bit silly looking, but it's also badass, right? Which is that that's kind of some of the Batman dualism, a little bit silly at times and also badass. Absolutely. That's the that's the formula. Uh, there, there's excess. Uh, and you're absolutely right. He's a designer. He slaps his own logo on everything he owns. That's kind of the cool thing about Jeez, him. Who else does that remind me of? No, never mind. We're not going to say that word. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, he's a, he's a designer. And so, um, Mitch, one thing that I wanted to ask is, obviously, presiding over something like Terrificon, which is yes. Connecticut's Comic-Con, y- you know, there's so many aesthetics now. I've been to Comic-Con. I know what it's like. It's, right. you know, it's, it's global. There's all kinds of things going on. I would assume still there is a persistence of this old, old, back to 1939 look that if you, if you had one of, I don't know if you've had one of Mark's cars there at yeah. your convention, but I would assume there's a gasp. Oh, yeah. The Batmobile itself, whether it's the one from the 89 uh, Keaton film or it's the 66, they are celebrities upon their own self. You put that on the marquee. You know, we have so-and-so from The Walking Dead. We have so-and-so from Star Wars. We have a Batmobile. That those that word just lights up people's face like he was saying when they see it. They're little kids, their dads, their grandfathers. Everybody loves the Batmobile. And let me tell you, last year I got to sit behind it and got a photograph you, it's like getting inside an Apollo 11 and landing on the moon. There's something about it. It's magical. You sit in that car. I don't care who you are or what your shape body-wise is. You think you are Batman. And there, that's the magic of that car. It just takes you instantaneously 
to whatever Batman you have in your head, you become the Batman. Well, I mean, I think it's the first, Glenn, I think it's the first blank mobile. I mean, I, none of those are like a Pope mobile, for example. <laughs> uh, but I, don't, I think this is the first thing that whatever was a mobile. It, it invents that trope, uh, like so many others that Batman invents. Yes, and uh, there was an arrow car for Green Arrow that kind of aped, like everything about Green Arrow, pretty much aped the, the concept of Batman. There was a Joker mobile, there was a Spider mobile, mm-hmm. there was a Supermobile. Yeah, it's a, it's a thing. So uh, just as we're heading down the home stretch, I want each of you to sort of um, offer a little prediction here. Uh, Mitch, I'll start with you because Glenn has already kind of uh, riffed a little bit on Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. Uh, we're going to stay dark here, I assume. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's the direction that uh, Zack Snyder's chose. He did that with his Superman, Man of Steel film, and he's continuing it with this one. That's not my Batman, uh, per se. I'm hoping to see a brighter future. There's something about it that the Marvel films have seemed to have captured because they're they're funny. There's a sense of humor about them. They don't take themselves too seriously, where the latest DC Batman film seems to be so dark and so omnipotent, it, it, ominous. I mean, it's just overpowering. And Glenn, with about 30 seconds left, that's a little bit in the DNA, though, right? I mean, DC Comics back in the 30s and 40s, they, they were serious comic books. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, you ha- only have to look at Will Arnett in the Lego movie playing <laughs> yeah, a Batman who go. takes himself way too damn seriously <laughs> yeah. to, to see that the there, it's the cycle. The wheel is turning. I, I believe that firmly. All right. So uh, maybe in the next iteration, the post Zack Snyder iteration, we'll see a Batman who's got a little bit of a uh, little bit more merriment. Maybe he'll smile once in a while. Who knows? Go crazy. Smile, Batman. Uh, we've been talking to Mitch Halleck. Uh, he's a creator, owner, and terrific con of Connecticut's Comic Con. Come. Uh, it's Terrificon in August. Glenn Weldon's uh, book is The Caped Crusader, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. Check it out. It's out as of yesterday. Uh, thanks so much to Tiana Ducat and to Betsy Kaplan uh, and to everybody else. We'll be back tomorrow with a very different show. If I was your Batman, the hero you deserve, the hero you deserve. Na na na, na na na, na na na. Cat girl. Na na na, na na na, na na na. I can be a bad man. Na 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 na, bad man. So you're still telling me that you and Aquaman aren't doing it? We aren't. This is crazy talk, Robin. Then what's this on your computer? Holy fish porn, Batman. Uh, can't believe I left those tabs open.